Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host. And today, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to today's conversation. Uh, I'm, we're bringing in Chris Hesse. Uh, Chris is a principal in Clifton Larson Allen's, and just like myself. Uh, I think, Chris, we've known each other. I think we met for the first time in 2010, if I remember right. It was at the AI, AICPA Ag Conference in Denver. I, I think that's the first time we met, wasn't it? I, I'm sure it is, Paul. It, uh, I had I followed your blog a little bit before that, and then we met at that at that conference, and it was it was uh, quite a pleasure, I guess, in in uh, getting to know you a little bit in that in that conference, and we we had an opportunity to share the uh, taxi back to the airport and and chatted some more, and little did we know where our paths would go from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for probably the listeners out there um, probably don't realize, and I'm willing to share it, uh, you know, we were in the, like I say, we were riding back to the airport, and I remember you had asked me, um, you know, because I was in a smaller firm, there was three partners, including myself, I remember you asking me, uh, hey, what are you guys going to do for succession planning? Because I was the youngest partner, and I teasingly, I remember I just sort of laughingly said, hey, I'll give you a call in 10 years or something. Not realizing that my my one partner that I'd been the partner with the longest uh, about a month later actually went down in our office uh, in Kennewick and hung himself. So uh, you know I had to call you and real and didn't realize it would be uh, joining CLA a month later. So you know it's just one of those things that happens at times. Fortuitous events. Uh, who knows what the future brings and who knows what kind of where our relationships may ultimately take us. And, and I am certain it, it has certainly been uh, beneficial for, for me in having somebody else to uh, fall back on and, and check me every once in a while on agricultural tax matters and your expertise in the, in the government programs and farm service agency has been invaluable for for us as a firm in in moving forward for our clients. Uh, we can't do everything, and yep. we are becoming a world of specialists. Yeah, and uh, it's it's beneficial. <laughs> uh, we can't be the only specialist out there. No. We still need a second opinion every once in a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah, it is nice. So, well, let's go ahead and get started with more. Um, what is your background? Where did you grow up? Uh, how did you get started in this career? And uh, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, I uh, I grew up Paul west of west of Portland. Uh, graduated from Hillsborough High School in the Malamet Valley or the Tualatin Valley uh, at at uh, at Shoals in a community called Shoals, south of Hillsborough. And our family had settled there in the 1870s and had continuously farmed in that area uh, since then until 1987 when they relocated the farm to eastern Washington. And uh, at the time, I was with a small local firm in Eugene, Springfield, Oregon area and, and decided that I wanted to be closer to my family. And as a result, uh, I looked for uh, a uh, opportunity in Eastern Washington, knowing that this move was going to happen uh, for the family, uh, we actually moved in 1983 to Eastern to Eastern Washington. As to how I got into accounting, that that's kind of odd because, you know, of course, uh, farm boys, we always think that we're going to be farmers ourselves, and uh, I thank God actually for. Um, I'm, I'm allergic to just about everything on the farm. It was miserable <laughs> as a kid because uh, alfalfa, hay, terrible allergic reactions where I'd ha have a tough time breathing. But you got to work. Uh, yeah. you know, what are you going to do? And well, fortunately, my dad allowed me to do the more of the work outside in in hauling the hay in rather than being in the in the close confines of a barn where the dust yeah. uh, uh, doesn't blow away. And I was able to at least continue to, uh, uh, you know, do all the as much work as everyone else. But uh, clearly, my health would not allow me to to uh, uh, continue in that environment. And 
uh, I looked elsewhere and and I don't know, uh, took a high school bookkeeping class <laughs> and that high school bookkeeping class uh, led me to um, ultimately getting a degree in, in business administration, passing the CPA exam uh, a month after I graduated from college. And uh, there we go from there. I, I hadn't thought that I'd ever be a tax person. I hated the tax class in college. It was a bad <laughs> professor. And so I look at myself as being self-taught really in, in uh, income taxes, estate and gift taxes, because I, I didn't pick up any of that in, in, in college. And uh, um, I guess it, it is a lesson, Paul, in if you're passionate about something, you're going to learn more about it. And I wanted to do the best that I could for my family and doing tax planning, tax compliance work and didn't want to make a mistake there. And and again, the, the legal aspects of income taxes, the, the politics behind it as to why tax laws get to where they are. Um, and it, it uh, I just seem to have a knack for it and yeah. and a passion. And that's you, know, you build a building blocks over 43 years. Uh, you get a little bit of knowledge in that. Yeah, we, we, we hope we get a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, yeah, I although I will admit there there's sometimes when I get an email from a tax practitioner out there that's been practicing longer than me. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you asking me that question? You know, I, I sort of go, oh, oh I'm, I'm a little concerned now, but that's that's a whole separate subject. We won't go into that. So so you've been based. Well, you haven't been strictly based in the Northwest. And, and for our listeners out there, I think most of them understand that Portland means Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. But I at least wanted to to, to yeah. reinforce that <laughs> to point. the listeners. But uh, uh, you primarily are based in in the Pacific Northwest, but you have been in other spots during your career. Um, wh where were you at during that time period? Yes, I started uh, with uh, the predecessor firm to CLA in, in as I said, eastern eastern Washington in the Tri Cities, Kennewick, Washington office at the time, and spent the 1980s there. Spent a couple of years in Spokane. Uh, spent 15 years uh, out on the family farm in Moses Lake, lived on the farm, but I traveled between our offices in eastern Washington. And then when CLA acquired our firm, uh, of course, I didn't have clients. I'm uh, I'm the uh, uh, the firm tax resource, resource person. And my best opportunity with CLA was uh, to be in their headquarters, which uh, had a headquarters at that time in Minneapolis. And so my wife and I, you know, kids are outside of the, no longer in the home uh, with us. And we'd never lived outside of the Pacific Northwest. So let's have an adventure and, and live in the Midwest for uh, a few years, knowing that it was going to be a maximum of nine years until retirement at that time. And uh, well, we, uh, like I said, we were there for six, ended up being there for six and a half years, had an opportunity to come back to Washington and the technology had increased so much yep. during that period of time that uh, I'd proven myself I could do whatever I uh, I could do my job from wherever. And uh, so we moved back in in summer of 2017 to uh, the Tri-Cities area, this time the adjacent city of Richland and been here ever since. So, yes, we had that sojourn in in uh, Minneapolis, but um, uh, back to the northwest family farm is about 90 miles north of us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's a little bit warmer here in the winter than it is in Minneapolis. I, I will I will verify that. Just a little bit. Uh, that was my thing in the morning. I walked to work. We lived in downtown uh, in a condo and I checked the temperature in the morning and to determine which which how many layers of clothes to put on <laughs> on my uh, one mile walk uh, to uh, to the office in the morning. If it got below zero, that's when the parka uh, was used. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, we got to got to experience the the uh, cold of of Minneapolis. And uh, you know, earlier in your career, you sort of got involved in a in a 
I'm going to say an issue dealing with alternative minimum tax. You also got really involved with uh, helping Washington Farm Bureau, American Farm Bureau. Let's go through through that process. Yeah, yeah, we had a situation. This is the mid '90s, where one of our clients in Eastern Washington um, reflected a taxable income of of fifteen thousand dollars. We'd done the tax planning and. And uh, he was audited a couple of years later on that year. And the IRS said, well, yeah, we agree with your taxable income of $15,000. But uh, the IRS said that he owed alternative minimum tax of $100,000. And I'm saying that can't be right. Uh, owing, owing tax of $100,000 on taxable income of $15,000 just doesn't work. And that's the a pretty IRS high mark. That's a pretty high marginal tax rate. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always say, well, there's no uh, marginal tax rate over 100 percent. But that that's yeah, the IRS yeah. is saying that there was. Yeah. And uh, so I uh, um, we dug into it and disagreed with the IRS as to the it was a deferred payment contract issue. Um, where, of course, the farmer uh, is delaying the receipt of the uh, of the income until the next year. And the IRS said, well, that only works for regular tax, but it didn't work for the alternative minimum tax. We disagreed. Uh, we worked with um, uh, attorneys to take that to to court. It wasn't our client that was going to court on the matter. It was another uh, firm and another another client in eastern in eastern Washington, a different farmer, uh, but also worked in the political uh, arena at the time. And uh, I lived in Grant County, uh, Washington, Moses Lake area, and. Uh, went to the Grant County Farm Bureau meeting and mentioned this. And, and of course, the local farmers, they understood uh, deferred payment contracts. They understood that was wrong. So the Grant County Farm Bureau took it to the State Farm Bureau. The State Farm Bureau took it to the American Farm Bureau Federation. And initially, they kind of poo-pooed it and said, well, that's just a, a, a potato issue. And I says, no, it's not a potato issue. <laughs> and uh, the the corn growers of of uh, the uh, uh, forget the National Corn Growers Association, I think it is, said, yep. no, that that doesn't affect corn growers. And I says, yes, it does. It does. Yep. Deferred payment contracts. And uh, it, as as things went on, then uh, we did have a meeting uh, with myself versus seven IRS officials in Washington, D.C. And uh, it's a technical advice memorandum meeting uh, that we had. And that was a little bit intimidating. It's me on one side of the table <laughs> and seven IRS people on the other side. And everybody had their, their subsection of the Internal Revenue Code that they were the expert in. And I go, oh, okay. And and well, we I, I kind of knew where things were going to go when, when they asked the question, well, why were these potatoes being raised? And I go, hmm, uh, mm -hmm. to eat? Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you I eat potato chips or baked potatoes? <laughs> I didn't quite know where the, where the, what the reason for the question. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, we're raising potatoes for consumption. Um, yeah. But, it, well, that didn't matter ultimately. But uh, they did say, well, we're going to hold with our position. I go, okay, fine. Um, and uh, continued to uh, work in the congressional uh, arena and was um, the Spokane U.S. Uh, congressman at the time, George Nethercutt, that was kind of spearheading that. Uh, he's in the, he was in the, um, he was a representative for, as it turned out, uh, the state president of Washington Farm Bureau was the vice president of American Farm Bureau Federation. So wow. had a pretty good connection there. But it, ultimately, uh, in 1997, Congress passed the legislation that retroactively repealed the provision that the IRS was relying on for its position. And you know, Paul, I, I don't know. There's not very many times that that a provision in the Internal Revenue Code is has been retroactively repealed 
10 years uh, yeah. back to the 1986 Tax Reform Act. Yeah, certainly not 10 years. I mean, there's been others three or four years, maybe like going back even before my career started, maybe even before yours started, because we're not that far apart in age. You know, this the quote, the repeal step up in bases, that sort of got retroactively eliminated after about three years, four years, something like that. But. Yeah, it was, I think it was uh, 1978. Uh, yeah. 1979 was repealed back to 1976. Yeah, uh, yeah. so about three about three years. So, But yeah, yeah 10 years is a, is a pretty long <laughs> period. So, Well, we uh, it did show, though, that uh, one person can make a difference. Um, you know, it's not one person, me, uh, but uh, this one client in eastern Washington and uh, taking that to, well, of course, wanting we didn't charge him for any of this work. It was a big issue for, uh, for, yeah, for our farm everybody. clients. Yeah. Yeah. And and ultimately uh, we were we were successful in in uh, in repealing this. So. Uh, that that kind of made me that uh, made me feel good. Let me put yeah. it that way. As yeah. to uh, things do work out, uh, you may not know how they will will work out, but in this case, it worked out uh, for the benefit of all of the country's uh, farmers. Uh, as it was, uh, the IRS said uh, after this meeting in in um, Washington D.C. that well, we're going to. We're going to rule against you. Do you want to uh, re- withdraw uh, so that this isn't going to be published and and ruling against you? And I says, no, I, I want this. I want this out there in the public, because once this becomes publicly known, uh, the farm, uh, the farmers across the country, they understand the value of deferred payment yeah, contracts. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to get hit with AMT. So, yeah, the phones will be ringing in congressional offices once this hits. And I was right. Uh, yeah. That really created the political pressure to uh, pass this legislation. And um, in speaking of of you know having discussions with with Congress, certainly. You've had discussions. I've had discussions. We'll talk about a couple of other ones later on. I was just jotting down a note to myself here that you and I also, well, probably what three, four years ago, had a discussion with Treasury and IRS dealing with farm NOLs. You know, on uh, as a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, go through that process a little bit. What what we what our discussion was and what ultimately happened with that. Well, we had the the changes in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and uh, repealing the the carryback of net operating losses. And we had uh, previously the farmers had been allowed to carry back net operating losses uh, five years. And it was a change to allow farmers to carry back the net operating loss for two years. And uh, that was part of the the compromises because all of the other uh, taxpayers of the country, uh, no one else other than farmers and insurance companies. Uh, so, well, there's just there's a lot more farmers out there than there are insurance companies. Yes. Yep. Uh, can uh, carry back their net operating loss uh, for uh, this two now two year period of time, and uh, then uh, the uh, the pandemic hits. And we have uh, the changes that uh, resulted from the uh, allowing everyone to have a five-year carryback uh, for the years 2020, 2019, 2020, 2018, 19? Yep, 18, 19, and 20. 18, 19, yeah. and 20, yeah. Thanks. And uh, But uh, the farmers had already made their uh, election to... Uh, forego the carry back, or they'd already carried back uh, the two years. We'd done the tax planning and say, "Yep, two years," or carry, or we elect to carry forward. And now the door is open, and to to a five year carry back for everyone else. And the the farmers are saying, "Well, uh, the, and and the way that the legislation was written, 
it wiped out the two-year carryback. Yeah. So yeah. these farmers that had carried back their net operating loss for two years, they're now required to go back and amend their tax returns and take away the two-year carryback and make it a five-year carryback. Uh, or if they had elected to forego the carryback, the IRS said, well, you made the election to forego the carryback. You can't get back to uh, the five-year period of time. Well, five years from before 2018, that was the 2013 18, period. Was there were some really high income yeah, and yeah. you wanted to carry back now five years. You didn't want it two years, but you did want the five years. And uh, Congress, when they rushed through the CARES Act, uh, the first major tax bill of the pandemic, and didn't didn't realize uh, that farmers had these special rules and taking away the the uh, two year and just adding more costs to farmers to amend tax returns because some farmers are just okay I I don't I just want to leave it the way it is yeah, yeah so there were a lot of different dynamics in this and you and I uh, worked with some key people back in, uh, in the Senate staffers and uh, been very beneficial relationships and, and again it just shows. Paul, back to our opening where you just never know where relationships will will take us. I'd met this one uh, staff person um, in the 1995, 1997 timeframe when he was a staffer on Senate Small Business Committee. And he'd had various positions in the Senate staff, House Ways and Means uh, staff, he was assistant deputy secretary of the treasury for a while, the end of the Bush 43 administration. Uh, very nice guy, uh, very knowledgeable and uh, knows, uh, knows how to uh, how the system works. And he was in a position to uh, recognize that, yeah, this is this is an issue and it's not really right. And uh, we worked with him uh, as to can we get a fix on this? And that fix uh, ultimately came and where uh, farmers had the flexibility that we uh, that they should have had all along, but um, the flexibility to make uh, some separate decisions, even though they had earlier made these irrevocable elections. Yeah. So again, uh, you just never know where these relationships uh, will will help you in the future. Uh, don't burn don't burn bridges, if yeah, you will. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the NOL changes, it would have been nice if the IRS came out with some of their uh, guidance a little bit earlier. I mean, they they gave us about I think three months to make our minds up instead of giving us uh, you know maybe six months or a year. And and of course. We know during the pandemic, just dealing with the IRS was was well. It really hasn't gotten better. You know, no. hopefully that eighty billion that they're getting is going to improve their customer service. You know, that, I, I'm not sure if it will, but that's that's my hope. We, so we can hope. It, it was frustrating, Paul. You and I've talked about this. That IRS said, well, uh, we have to follow the law. Um, that may not have been in uh, congressional intent, but we have to follow the law. And yet, when it came to other aspects of the pandemic, the IRS seemed to be making some allowances to uh, make the law pretty flexible yeah, to yeah. come out with what Congress intended. So it, it was kind of IRS picking and choosing when it wanted to follow the uh, the strict confines yeah. of the law versus the uh, congressional intent as indicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they they were willing to tweak it in some areas and not tweak it in other areas. That that's certainly. for sure. And then certainly another thing that came about that really doesn't affect most grain farmers, but it did affect our orchardists out there was the changes on the small business side, where Section 263A was sort of eliminated if your revenue was under a certain threshold. But we had all these farmers back in this. 80s, you know, 80s and 90s, they had elected out of 263A, therefore they were penalized on depreciation and so on. And, you know, we were, you know, you and I were discussing, well, 
does that mean they are now not subject to 263A? Do they automatically get a, you know, go, you know, ignore 263A? And and we had certainly discussions with, uh, you know, IRS personnel on that whole subject, and they finally came out with some guidance that really was very, very helpful for our farmers. It, that's true. And uh, to the, to your listeners, the 263A, these are the these are the cost of establishing permanent crops. Um, orchards and vineyards are the two primary ones, but um, there are others. And uh, it was a result of 1986 Tax Reform Act that uh, farmers would no longer be able to write off the cost directly of establishing an orchard or vineyard unless they made these elections that you referred to. And then Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came out. Well, if you if if you're below a certain gross uh, receipts threshold, twenty five million dollars, that's that's a lot of people. Uh, then uh, these rules of Section 263A don't apply to you. And we thought, well, okay, moving forward, they don't apply. And as it turns out, again, you what you referred to, favorable, the IRS uh, said, no, they don't apply to anybody that's below this. And as a result, you can change your accounting method. And if you have remaining undepreciated costs of establishing that orchard or vineyard, you can write those off in, yeah. in the year that you file this form. And uh, again, very beneficial in that case, but uh, we we were doubting it, and well, we confirmed with the appropriate people in the in the national office of the IRS that yeah, you're reading this right. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, if if you and I or whoever it doesn't have to be you or I hadn't brought up the issue, I I doubt the IRS would even have taken a look at it because. For to some degree, the IRS views ag as being a very it isn't something they're that interested in. And, you know, if you look at the cumulative Schedule F income for the last 30 years, it's never been positive. It's always been negative. Uh, they don't view farmers as being something where they can get a lot of taxes out of them. So I, I think they just sort of I won't say ignore us or ignore the farmers out there, but it isn't a hot button for them. That's for sure. Well, that that does remind me of our friend the, the staffers comment that uh, jokingly that that uh, the United States should make uh, all farmers uh, just tax exempt entities and it would be a <laughs> revenue raiser for the government because the of your statistic that you just cited that that uh, over all of the years the the net schedule F's have been have been negative uh, it hasn't been a tax raiser uh, the tax tax reporting is uh, for agriculture as a whole. Uh, now we know certainly there are a lot of clients that are paying a lot a of lot. taxes, yeah, yeah, but yeah. there are huge numbers of of small farmers that are reporting losses, and the net of all of that is uh, is a negative because you have a lot of people that have their their Schedule F uh, that is offsetting. The, the the off farm income yeah yeah well that never happens chris so <laughs> and i'm sure that's not the case in in uh, in your farm in, in dayton uh, either paul well that one i am probably in the process of selling but my farms in uh, iowa missouri and and where i grew up they're actually going to be i think profitable this year the, you know the the price is pretty good so we'll see what happens although I think I do have to buy another pivot in Missouri, so that'll be section or but that'll be bonus depreciation. So we'll see what happens. But uh, <laughs> but uh, now, sort of a non-tax issue, but in a way it is a little bit of a tax issue. Is back in 2008, you know, the the Farm Bill came out and it had these AGI definitions. You know, you had. Um, adjusted gross income from farming was one limit, from non-farming was another limit, and then for conservation is another limit. But as part of that process, the Farm Service Agency or the, yeah, essentially it was the Farm Service Agency came out and said that if we identify you as being over the limit, but you think you're under the limit, we're going to allow an attorney or a CPA to come up with 
a certification. We're going to allow you to sign this form, whatever the form might be. Now dealing with the ERP recently, it's form 510, but I think it was a 943 back then, or maybe that's the form that you signed to certify that you're under. Doesn't matter. There's too many form numbers when you're dealing with both the IRS and FSA. But as a CPA, and that's what people don't understand, that even though we have the word certified in our name, we're a certified public accountant, our ethics really don't allow us to do that certification. So you got involved in helping FSA come, or in conjunction with the AICPA come up with something that works. So let's go through that process. Uh, we were we were concerned uh, because the government is is using this language of of the CPA certifying the the income ta- the income that the individuals uh, had, and well, we can't certify that. Uh, we, as you said, we don't certify, and we don't know when we are signing a tax return. We don't know uh, that. Uh, we've picked up all of the income that the individual has or picked up all of the expenses. These are the uh, taxpayers' representations to us as to their income. We certainly haven't audited uh, that income, so there's we couldn't even issue an opinion as to what the what the income is, let alone certify, use that word certify. And well, knowing this and knowing it was an agricultural issue, um, I, we reached uh, out to the AICPA. They reached out to us the, uh, uh, as to uh, how do we work this? Because the CPAs, we had CPAs that are just signing these letters and well, they're violating their ethics in signing yeah, that yeah. letter. Yeah. And uh, so what do we do? Yeah, well, I contacted Ed Carl, who's the vice president of uh, of tax for the AICPA, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and he recognizes the recognized the issue uh, right away, and he arranged a call uh, between the Department of Agriculture, the Farm Service Agency, that person in Washington D.C., and. Uh, for and himself, uh, myself, and we chatted through this. And how do we how do we accomplish what the government wants and allows uh, for this dividing up of the married couple filing jointly their tax return as to what it would have been if you had filed married filing separate, and ultimately came out with the language that's in the uh, the handbook. Uh, for drafting these letters that the CPAs can use in drafting these letters. In essence, what we're saying is this is what the income would have been in dividing between the married filing uh, joint, the couple, as to what it would have been as if married filing separately without saying that, yes, we certify that this is their income. No, we're only taking the what was reported as married filing joint and dividing it in, in accordance with their their ownership percentages. Yeah, and, and I think many farmers don't realize that when they hear the term, there's an AGI limit for FSA payment purposes, that it really is per person. It's not per married couple filing, it's per person. So like in our state, Chris, you and I are in the state of Washington, we're uh, we're a community property state, and that means instead of being a nine hundred thousand dollar payment limit, it's actually a one point eight million dollar property uh, or, or AGI limit. Yeah, and I had that just this morning. It came up again this morning, where I had that question uh, for um, a client: Is are, are we going to need to worry about this nine hundred thousand dollar limit? And I says, Well, no, not really. It's it's really one point eight million dollar limit for you because we're in a community property yeah, state. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Chris, we're going to go ahead and continue our conversation, but we're going to go ahead and take a break for a sponsor message right now, and then we'll come back and. Uh, We'll, we'll keep talking about FSA and a few other things. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. 
subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the uh, Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Chris Hesse. Um, Chris, dealing with FSA, we, we, we've certainly, and, and you weren't too involved in that, but it, it is something that it is interesting how the definition of farm income that the FSA uses and the definition of farm income that the IRS uses is dramatically different in many, many areas. Uh, you know, the recent emergency relief program that they came out with, ERP, another acronym, um, their definition of farm income includes some things, but it doesn't include other things. Or it says if you want to include equipment gains, you know, you have to have, you know, two thirds of your other income or your farm income has to be more than two thirds, including the equipment gains, which for a lot of our farmers, that automatically puts them out. Now, we were hoping FSA was going to, you know, see the light, so to speak, but I, I think it became a budget issue once, because the, they had only set aside $6 billion for phase one, and they're already at $7 billion. So what I'm hoping maybe in the next farm bill, and we've had discussions with the House committee and the Senate committee on that subject, that maybe they'll get that fixed, I'm hoping, but I, I don't know if it'll get fixed in time for the ERP. So well, uh, your contacts in DC uh, have we it's already been proven those contacts have been uh, helpful for the country's farmers and that the the FSA's definition, for example, of farm income has been, well, the page one of the 1065, the partnership income tax return, or the page one of the S corporation tax return, which doesn't have the section 179 deduction in it as an, as an easy example. And we all know that section 179 is a depreciation number, but it appears right. elsewhere on yep. the form. Yeah. And you've been ranting about that for several years. And finally, there was a there was a um, a farmer that it made a big difference because what happens here is that 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 deduction didn't appear on page one, so their farm income was artificially inflated. Yep. And when that section one seventy nine deduction went up to a million dollars, now that's a, that's a big number. And so this farmer was taking the government to court. And you were scheduled to testify. And I think, Paul, you had made it to the courthouse and were, uh, were just was, ready to go into the trial. And why don't you why don't you tell the story? Because, yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> you were there. I and, wasn't. It, it, and it actually wasn't a formal trial. It, it was in front of an administrative judge in Madison, Wisconsin. And I remember I had showed up on time and I'm I'm having a, a nice conversation with the judge. We're just talking about, you know, kids and stuff like that. And the FSA person is a little late and we're like, what's going on here? Well, the FSA person finally showed up and I remember the judge looked at me and, and she asked, hey, do you have anything to add to your to your uh, to your um, brief? And I said, no, I, I think it it stands on its own. And then she turned and looked at the FSA person and said, do you have anything to add or do you have anything to comment? And, and the lady said, well, the reason I'm late is we just got off with national and we finally said, we agree with Mr. Neifer. You should be allowed to deduct section 179. That was the extent of the uh, of the of the trial. So uh, now the interesting thing is because, you know, as you mentioned, Chris, we, we do a blog. I wanted to blog on that right away, but the FSA person says, hey, you have to wait until we actually put it out in the public, then you can blog on it. So, uh, but uh, that was back in 2017, I think. So, uh, and your your blog couldn't be the breaking news. For no, the no, 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 <laughs> couldn't be the breaking news. And, and it, of course, the interesting thing is they could have just said, Hey, you're allowed to deduct section 179, but instead they had an exhibit in the handbook that was like 24 pages long. I mean, it was like, 
hey, we as CPAs know Section 179. You don't have to have this exhibit that that's, it's that long, but it, it worked out just fine. So, Well, it's unfortunate, though, that the government isn't recognizing the same argument on the other side with regard to the equipment gains right. um, that uh, aren't treating the equipment gains as as farm income, because we all know that equipment gains are just a reversal of the the depreciation that you took in the prior year. And uh, so if the depreciation is taken as a farm deduction, the equipment gains should be farm income. Uh, It seems very very intuitive and obvious to to us uh, and most of the nation's farmers, but not to the government apparently. Yeah, and, and I think part of that was probably caused by the fact that before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there really wasn't much equipment gains. And probably likely when there was equipment gains, maybe the farmer was quitting farming. So maybe I could understand that in that scenario. But since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, every farmer, almost every farmer has equipment gains just because we're required to report it anytime they trade in farm equipment. So. Yeah, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed a lot of dynamics. And of course, it's a tax bill. And the Department of Agriculture uh, isn't known for uh, tax expertise. That's not their area. And uh, I understand that, but it does uh, call up the need for revising uh, government guidelines that are based on taxable income reported uh, that because of the tax law change, maybe you should be changing your guidelines. Now, the the IRS does have an audit guide dealing with farmers and so on, but that audit guide, when's the last time it was updated? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, but it. I I think the uh, that has. I think it is dated back into the eighties. Yeah, I, and because I, I, uh, you it, know some it, of the terminology they use in there, it it's it's oh man, that really hasn't been applicable for quite a few years. So well, and and just uh, their guidelines, for example, on prepaid farm expenses as to when you have a prepaid versus when you have a deposit. Now, we know that you actually have to buy the fertilizer. You can't just write a check and say, apply this against next year's fertilizer purchases. Uh, You have to buy the fertilizer or buy the chemical. And one of their guidelines, this is from 1979 uh, revenue ruling, says that, well, uh, in part, it depends on whether it's a depositor or a purchase on how the seller treated it. And and that's still the the official word today. And I'm saying, hey, they're in their books. I have no control over right. what they do yeah. in their books. And it may be entirely proper for them, even under the Internal Revenue Code, to be reporting this as a sale. Uh, but that shouldn't be dictating to me because the the rules on the deductibility of expenses are separate from the rules on the taxability of income. Yep. yep. And you can't you can't tie uh, two third-party taxpayers uh, to the treatment of each other because they have no control over how each other is reporting that particular item. So I I kind of poo-poo that, and it hasn't been raised against uh, against me, but it does point out just some of the silliness. Yeah. Uh, a quick story. We had a uh, argument on IRS had argued constructive receipt. Now, constructive receipt uh, for the listeners is when you didn't actually receive the check, but you could have demanded payment uh, of the check. And this happens at the end of the year where somebody, uh, where the farmer may May have actually uh, received the check and and puts it in the drawer and doesn't take it to the bank until after the end of the year. Now, Chris, there are there are no farmers that ever do that, Chris. Let's let you. (laughs) Okay, and uh, so. So um, that's an easy example of constructive receipt. Well, the IRS, when they audit, they're going to look at your deposits in the first week, first couple of weeks of January and and take a smell test as to whether any of those deposits actually came in uh, earlier than uh, the, uh, the first of the year. And we had one that 
that uh, the check was written on December 24th, but it wasn't deposited by the taxpayer until January 5th. And the IRS said, oh, you must have received that before the end of the year. And he says, no. And I asked you, are you sure? No, ab absolutely. That check did not come until after the end of the year. And so we said, well, why was it dated on December 24th? So we we went to the company and you know, this is the story here. And, and, and they say, well, yeah, we wrote all those checks on December 24th because we're our office is closed between Christmas week. and New Year's. But uh, we sent well, when did you mail the checks? Oh, yeah, we send somebody into the office on New Year's Eve and <laughs> to uh, mail the checks, drop the checks into the mail. But they were all written a, a week earlier, but they weren't mailed until December 31. And I go. I need a letter to that effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> And yeah. Uh, they gave us a letter and the IRS auditor uh, went away. Had another one where the IRS said, well, you could have gone to your neighbor because it's a check one neighbor wrote to the other. You could have driven to your neighbor's house and, and picked up that check on December 31. And I said, yeah, but there's no requirement in the Internal Revenue Code that you drive to your neighbor's house. And the IRS yeah. said, well, we use the zip code rule. And I says, oh, really? The zip code <laughs> rule? What is the zip code rule? And he said, well, if you're in the same zip code, we will uh, we will say that you could have just gone to gone and picked up the check. And I said, well, this zip code uh, is 30 miles wide and 50 miles deep. deep. You can't tell me that on December 31, when we might have a blizzard out there, that uh, the farmer uh, could have driven 60 miles to uh, the, uh, another person in the same zip code and picked up the check. And that means he's in constructive receipt. I said, show me the zip code rule. <laughs> and of course, there is no zip code rule. He was making it up or, uh, you know, I don't know uh, where he came up with it, but uh, he, he went away. Uh, that yeah. that disappeared. But, so it's and, just and some of these things. And that zip code would definitely apply to my county, you know, Columbia County. It might have two zip codes. Starbucks got a zip code, but the, the other is all 99328. And it's like you say, from top to bottom, it's got to be close to 50 some miles. And uh, and a lot of that is rugged territory. So, uh, yeah, you could. Uh, and it does get uh, we do get snow. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I yeah, and, and and actually right now for us to mail a letter, like if I'm mailing a letter to Dayton from Dayton, it goes up to Spokane, then it turns yeah. around and comes back. So it's a minimum of one or two days. So uh, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, that's some of the foolishness, though, Paul, that we get into uh, with the government uh, in arguing, because as you say, uh, we know that the nation's farmers, they make up less than 2% of the population. Yep. And uh, the full-time farmers are considerably a smaller percentage yeah. of that, and the expertise of agricultural tax it, it is it is a specialized specialized industry in the in the tax world as well. And there aren't very many people that are knowledgeable about it because you gain expertise by experience. Yep. yep. And unless you're working in it all the time, you you don't gain those experiences, and so you don't gain that expertise. Uh, you may be able to read a book on it, but uh, until you're out there uh, in the trenches, actually arguing with whatever uh, the uh, IRS is coming up with or arguing with your with your colleagues. You yeah. can't do that. Well, yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. This is no, agriculture. Yeah. It's farming. <laughs> yeah. And they don't understand. Yeah. What do you mean you can write off your inventory? Well, uh, that's that's the thing that farmers can do. <laughs> and, we, and we get to sell our inventory on an installment contract. You know, they they, they oh, actually we get to sell all farm property on an installment contract. So uh, you know, it's, uh, it's watch out when to... you say that because of the equipment gains. In yeah, 45, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can still sell it on installment contract. Doesn't mean you can report the income necessarily on the installment uh, basis. Very and of true. Course, de and dealing with related parties, you have issues there Very too. True. Well, Chris, we have other topics that we could go over, but uh, you know, we try to keep uh, the conversation to less than about 45 minutes. We're definitely coming up on that uh, uh, now. 
I do want to bring up on the call that that you probably aren't doing your profession that much longer. Why don't you share for the mm -hmm. audience uh, how much longer you're actually uh, going to be doing this profession? Well, we're we are recording this on October 6th and I, I'm retiring on October 31. And I've people have asked me, well, are, are you going to be doing some consulting? And I can no. Um, my work is to be on top of current and breaking uh, income tax developments. That's my area is income tax uh, domestically. And you can't do that on a part-time basis. Yeah. And the, the expertise ages very quickly. Uh, and uh, especially with the rapidity the, as, as fast as the government uh, issues, rulings, uh, court cases, uh, changes in the law over the last couple of years uh, <laughs> has been <clears throat> as a result of the pandemic. And so, yeah, that uh, Halloween is my is my last day. And uh, I've told people that uh, there's a lot of institutional knowledge and it's a way of keeping in touch with me or keeping in contact with me if you want of of giving me a call and and you can't rely on me for what's going on uh, in current income tax yeah. developments but if there's something that uh, has an institutional knowledge back into the 80s and 70s uh, that might have applicability ability today uh, I'd enjoy the conversation yeah well certainly uh uh, we're going to miss your your knowledge, but uh, believe me, I have your phone number and I'll have your email and I'll be reaching out to you many, many times. So, uh, again, well, you, your 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 number, Paul, is on my favorites on my uh, on my <laughs> cell phone. So um, I uh, it, again, Paul, it's been a great relationship uh, since that time we met in yeah. in Denver and uh, fortuitously um, you joined uh, CLA uh, earlier than you might have otherwise yeah. Yeah. Uh, been but it, it's been a great uh, it, it's been good for the country's farmers too because I think that uh, CLA is a bigger platform uh, certainly nationally um, that uh, you've been able to apply your expertise yeah. Uh, over a much wider swath of the country than you might have had as a as a reach from uh, just a local firm. I totally agree. And again, Chris, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day. Thank you, Paul. This is the uh, Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. <laughs>